Welcome to the Explain podcast, a podcast where next generation sequencing techniques are explained to me by Daniel. That's me, because I'm a bioinformatician and Julia is a physicist who joined us recently at the sequencing facility. We are two colleagues from the Next Generation Sequencing Competence Network and we work at the West German Genome Center in Düsseldorf. Hello everyone! And now the podcast Explain once more with you. After receiving feedback, we realized that we need a fundamental episode. Where we really explain the fundamental words that we will say here every 20 seconds, that everyone can go along with what we explain and understands where we are going with it. So we start with the most fundamental dogma of biology, which is we go from DNA to RNA to protein. Oh yeah, that sounds absolutely fantastic. <laughs> and you know what? I will start explaining it to you. So if you think it's stupid, give us a feedback, but be gentle about it. <laughs> and um, since I'm a bioinformatician and Julia is a physicist, I think it will be the most fun that Julia starts with explaining stuff. Why not? Really? Yeah. Okay, Julia. For sure, I googled. You know about it, right? <laughs> <laughs> to not be super, super basic, stupid. What we all know about DNA. Ha, Daniel, do you know what DNA is? Like this dexo... Mm -hmm. Tell me about it. Deoxyribonucleic acid? Yeah. <laughs> Something like that. Yeah. So I definitely know there is this uh, ribonucleic acid, which is RNA. Mm -hmm. And I will talk about RNA. But I already start telling you that it's a single-stranded material and DNA then a double-stranded material. We will talk about that. It's not that, <laughs> it's not that easy. There, there are certain kinds of RNA, there are several kinds of DNA. So let's just start with... Now it's really, yeah. what, really what is interesting. That? What is that? So uh, I'm now starting to draw the double-stranded DNA, genetic material. What and why it is in our bodies, in all creations of life, it carries information. But which kind of information, Daniel? I, I know it also from a textbooks. DNA carries an information. And I was like, okay, wonderful. Yeah. So you already started with the double helix, yes? Yes. That is very central to the DNA, um, to double-stranded DNA, I should say. Um, but the information itself is not about the strands, it's about the basis between the strands. So the basis, mm -hmm. people, basis are these tiny structures in between the double strands. Are both strands RNA or one is RNA and another one something else? No, no. So the, the lines that you made here, we call it the DNA backbone. The, the line that goes from A to B here, that is a chain of sugars. Oh, hello there, mm. sugars. That's the sugar backbone. That's the deoxyribosa. Oh, wonderful. Okay, okay, yeah, I've heard that one. That is the backbone that carries the information. And the information is the basis that are between two of those strands or one. There is even a type of single-stranded DNA, but we will come to that later. Oh, yeah, please. The most native, the most abundant form of DNA is that double-stranded helix here that you can see in a lot of logos and stuff. There are four different bases that, that can be on top of the sugar. Oh, I know, I know. These are nucleotides, right? Exactly. Good point, Julia. Can you tell me which nucleotides? Because there are multiple. There are more than four, but DNA has only four. There are more than four, but oh God, these are these CTA... Nanana. Nanana. If, if nanana is a G, then yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Can you name them for us? Because for, for me, it's a bit complicated, of course, to, to get to it. Adenine? Yeah, adenine. 
guanine. Uh-huh. Cetosine. Uh, yeah. And tumine. <laughs> tumine. Tumine. Yes. So, people, here we go. Okay. And there is a central, central property of DNA, which is that only two of those bind to each other every time. So, a C cannot pair to T or A or G. Like never? Like never. Is there a, a big reason why? <laughs> so, there are two bases. Two of those bases are connected by two hydrogen bonds. And the other two bases are connected by three hydrogen. And only the three hydrogen bonds can bond to each other and the two hydrogen bonds acids. So which one oh, goes to it? Yeah, exactly. You said that this one, the... Cytosine. <laughs> Cytosine. <laughs> okay, you said that the uh, C part <laughs> is, mm -hmm. um, cannot be connected to anyone. Exactly. So the C cannot How connect to hydrogen? T or A or G. It can only connect to one. On, ah, only to one from these ones. Only not, to one. Not everything mm -hmm. at once. That's mm -hmm. what you meant. Okay. Mm -hmm. DNA base mm -hmm. is like a building block. It's like a letter in an alphabet or if you compare it to how you store data on a computer, it's like ones or zeros, but just you okay. have one, two, three, four, basically. And with these uh, two or three hydrogen bonds, mm -hmm. does every base can have two or three hydrogen bonds or... Each of them have some specific properties. For example, the C base can have only two. So T, thymine, and A, they can only have two. Oh. They have two hydrogen bonds, which okay. means only they connect to each other. So T, A. And if you have on the other strand an A, then you can expect the other strand to have their T. Okay? Okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. And the other case is with C. What do you think? Well, now the G is only mm. uh, what's left. Exactly. The next thing I wanted to explain is that the sugar, the backbone here, yeah. it's a desoxyribose. That is where the name comes from. Okay. So it's a sugar with, you know, yeah. phosphorus. Yeah. It, and you have an, typically, there's the base, let's say an A, which has a different structure. We will come to that later. The A, this nucleotide A. For example. Yeah, exactly. Uh -huh. okay. One of those bases. Mm -hmm. And on this connection here, there is typically an OH group, mm -hmm. if that would be the end of a DNA strand. If not, then this is the connection to another P. To another P, okay. And, and this P is then connected to another sugar. Right? And there comes another P. And there comes so, yeah, another sugar. Sugar, phosphorus, sugar, phosphorus, sugar. That is what this backbone here is on both strands. It's the same. Okay, this is kind of this single strand. So the sugar has normally five endings. Yes, oxyribose, yes. Mm. Exactly, this sugar. <laughs> <laughs> so this oxyribose mm. um, has five endings. And uh, we discussed... Five, five C, five, five carbon Yeah, five edges, carbon let's say. connections. Mm-hmm connection points. Mm -hmm. And uh, we said that one has connection to a nucleotide, mm -hmm. uh, and an another one phosphorus, and another one phosphorus, and yeah. phosphorus are the connection points to the next sugars. Yeah. What's happening with another two free connection carbon points that you left out free? <laughs> you are a chemist. Okay. So what happens if you have uh, five corners? Uh, they are vacant, aren't they? And you have, let's say, C's here. What happens in, in nature if you would have just this molecule? Yeah, they would try to connect to something else. Or themselves multiple times. The phosphorus is a really important part for the DNA because it links one 
part, basically one connection to a base, mm -hmm. to the other, to mm -hmm. the next. And if there is, at some point, there is an end of DNA. And then there is an OH group on the one end. And on the other end, there is then an open phosphorus group. All right. Okay. That is important for all sequencing techniques we are talking about in the future. Okay. Because you're using this OH group, something like a label or a marker for the ending, right? Or beginnings or ends of enzymes that dock on and start doing something. Hello, enzyme. Explain. We will start with the most basic part. Enzyme is a chain of amino acids. It mostly is just a bulky little thing. Mm -hmm. Like it, most enzymes have somewhere in the sequence. So it's a really long strand of amino acids, different amino acids. There are more than four amino acids. Okay. And uh, at some point there is in an enzyme typically an active site, let's say a magnesium, which is bound to the amino acid structure. Mm -hmm. And that is then the active site of this enzyme. And this catalyzes a reaction. What is catalyzation? Do you know a catalytic converter on your car? Catalysis should uh, improve somehow their, um, the speed of reaction in a way mm -hmm. or make it mm -hmm. more effective. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. That's sometimes in biology, you have a reaction that goes with a really slow and steady state. So here you have time and here you have percent of conversion or, All right. mm -hmm. or percent of reaction happening. Yeah? And it slowly goes up but with an enzyme. It does the same reaction, but it makes it faster, okay? So sometimes those enzymes need energy. They sometimes need cofactors. They sometimes need other things like water to work in. But they generally, if you add enzymes at some point, the reaction goes much faster, okay? Yeah. With most reactions, you can also say that if you add less enzymes, it goes less faster. And if you add more enzymes... It goes more faster. Can there be a point when you put so many enzymes that they basically quench the whole reaction? Yes, that's possible. You can also have that you saturate at some point, yeah, that you don't have enough energy for all enzymes to work. But there is also some point where the concentration of enzymes is really high and the amount of things that you want to react is so low that no enzymes finds any more substrate to react with. Mm -hmm. But typically uh, what we will talk about a lot is that we have some enzyme that's genetically engineered we will talk about genetically engineered enzymes. all right yeah mm -hmm. and it started out with an enzyme that someone found in a bacteria that does a certain job specifically well or in specific circumstances like for example a dna polymerase that does its reaction in really high temperature water where other enzymes would denature already but this enzyme is somehow surviving high temperatures which makes it really handy if you want to control a reaction by temperature, okay? Yes, yes. All right. And enzymes, their basic function to, to be catalyzers or not? Like the catalytic converter on your car. Yeah. They are. They are. Are they also cutting the DNA strands into pieces? Some, yeah. Some of them, but not all of them. Mm -hmm. So there are different types of enzymes as There's well? There's thousand different types of enzymes, which are catalytic converters to a lot of reactions. Okay. So all your metabolism is based on enzymes. Without enzymes, your body wouldn't work. There are some exceptions, as always, in biology. For example, there are specific RNAs, which behave like enzymes. RNA. Mm. Behaves like an enzyme. Sometimes, yes. How can it be possible? Yeah, it's containing different type of sugar. Enzyme consists of amino acids, right? Yeah, bound together. Yeah, and RNA is a single-stranded... Not always. ...this sugar with nucleotides. Yeah, it doesn't have anything to do with being an acid or not. It just has to do with the structure and mm -hmm. whether there is a pocket somewhere where a reaction can be 
catalyzed. Could you explain me in a couple words this beautiful pocket? <laughs> How to say, okay, I have RNA and there is a pocket in there? Yeah, sure. Okay. As with amino acids, you can also have RNA like this in a single strand, yeah. similar to DNA. Mm -hmm. Okay. DNA, we started like the double strand with the bases in between. And RNA, let's say, is here single stranded with other bases. And it has an open basis in a way. It has an OH end space. and a phosphorus end. I will spoil this. But also, RNA is more unstable compared to DNA. Yeah, it also does look much more unstable because once you have double-stranded, they kind of touch nucleotides from, from both sides. Yeah, yeah, it's the hydrogen bonds. Yeah, And for RNA, you sometimes have long RNAs where the sequence of the nucleotides dictates how the RNA will form into a ball. Let's call it a RNA ball. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And this RNA ball can also have a pocket, can also have an active site. As an empty space within within this conformed space, like a ball of RNA, is there an empty mm -hmm. I how <laughs> how can we say it? It's like in the middle of donut there is a, a space for some sauce, for some jam. <laughs> can we can we have this alignment? So is that a, a pocket you're talking about within the RNA? Okay, we, we will start with something really easy, okay? We start with transfer RNAs, tRNAs. So the central dogma of biology is that we start with DNA, with the bases. Here again, double-stranded, C, T, H, E. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then we go from, we will all talk about those processes. We go from DNA to RNA, single-stranded at this point. Yeah. This has a cap structure and a poly A tail. We will talk about this later. And from this, we go to amino acid chain. How? Good question. One step in the amino acid chain synthesis is that there are tRNAs. All right, yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay, so here are three ends mm -hmm. that can actually pair to the single-stranded RNA, okay? In RNA, you have C, A, U, and G. What do you mem remember from DNA? C can connect with G with the three hydrogen bonds and... Uh -huh. <laughs> Ah uh, no, there are <laughs> these are yeah. other things. Are Where other is things. T? Yes, exactly. Good point. There are no T. Yeah, but <laughs> but there is G A T C. Okay, so from DNA we yeah. have those four bases. We go from DNA to RNA. Those what is the U base? That's <laughs> RNA specific. Uracil or something yeah, like this. Exactly, it's an uracil. I just heard this name, so. It's, it was somewhere inside of my mind, but what mm. is it? And like, wow, okay. So, so only based on the sequence and whether you find a T or an U, you can determine whether you have RNA or DNA in your hand. It's not about this. Uh, you started to tell about trans, tra transfer RNA. Transfer RNA. And Isn't it the difference between RNA and transfer RNA? Transfer With this U, RNA. U and, and T or not? Transfer RNA does also have no T, also. like RNA. Okay. That's why it is an RNA. And not the transfer DNA. Oh my God. Okay. All right. No, very interesting. I mean, okay. I, I'm not sure that it's really clear for, for many people because uh, mm. we all know these four bases, at least not really by their full names, so to say, but mm -hmm. there is a C, there is a T, G and A. Most of the people can tell you that. But then that there is a difference to RNA when you have U instead of T. Huh. All right. Very nice. I've learned something absolutely new today. <laughs> Congratulations. Okay, so we were some, somewhere different. So we started with DNA, G-A-T-C. We go to RNA, G-A-U-C. Mm -hmm. And the transfer RNA are a special kind of RNA where the RNA has like those three fingers, mm -hmm. let's call them. And those can be complementary to the single-stranded RNA. Right? So if you have a G, this transfer RNA has a C. If there's an A, 
the complement to an A in this case is a new. Mm -hmm. And if you have the RNA with a U, the complement is an A. For each of those sequences of the transfer RNA, mm -hmm. there is one specific amino acid attached to it. Yeah, so this transfer RNA has an S attached to it. Okay, This is DNA. And mm -hmm. this is a tRNA. tRNA transfer RNA. And M? Messenger RNA. Because it is the message from the core of the cell to the protein synthesis machinery. And you tried to sneak this label just like that. Sorry. Before you always called it just RNA. <laughs> and now we have a messenger RNA. So people, yeah. <laughs> there are two types of RNAs right no, now. No, 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 there are like, there are several. Even more. There are long non-coding RNAs. What do you think they are? For the long coding. Long non-coding, yeah. Those are non-coding. Those are long pieces of RNA that don't co code. They are not made into a protein at a later stage, but they have other functions. Then you have microRNAs, which are smaller, around roughly 20 nucleotides. Okay. And they sometimes bind to mRNAs. Can we say how many nanometer long they are when you're talking about nucleotides, like 20 nucleotides, how many nanometers it is, or picometers? <laughs> we can, uh, but I don't know how long a microRNA is. It's about 20 nucleotides. That is what I can say in length. So, yeah, yeah, yeah that's good. the language of bioinformaticians. That's yeah. not the physicists. We don't speak in say. meters, we speak in bases. Yeah, you, sp <laughs> you speak in bases. <laughs> we have a different currency in our worlds, you know. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Those microRNAs, sometimes they bind to single-stranded mRNA. And when they are bind to mRNA, then the transfer RNA can't dock to it. Yeah, of course. And, and, and it's then not converted into protein, right? Because if the tRNA cannot dock onto it, and bind the, the mm -hmm. amino acid to it. And the amino acid then gets made into a long amino acid chain and every three RNA nucleotides get, get made into one amino acid. Mm -hmm. This becomes a long chain and this long chain at some point becomes a protein. The microRNA thus are inhibiting this function. They are inhibiting protein synthesis. Why do they even exist? Because RNA is made for... No, no, that, that is exactly what they're made for. MicroRNAs inhibit protein formation. Why would you want to prohibit protein formation inside of the life living being? Do you want cancer? At some point you need mm -hmm. to stop doing certain things, okay? These microRNAs, uh, do, do they have any type of sensors or sensoric functions uh, that could feel, okay, this DNA carries some cancer information, that's why I prohibit formation of it? That is a very good question. Yeah, I'm trying to break it down really for us to like super apply it. And I'm really sorry because because of your question, it becomes more complicated. So now circular RNAs come into question. Yeah, I already made peace with myself that we have multiple RNAs, so yeah. we'll pull all RNAs on top <laughs> of our heads. <laughs> okay, so circular RNAs are what you expect them to be, circles of RNA. Yeah, They, they don't have a start, they don't have an end. They are much more stable than microRNAs, for example. Yeah, but if you would like to sequence it in a way, mm -hmm. do you know where to start or where to finish? Can you even sequence the circle? You can, but you have to break it somewhere randomly and then find exon borders. But let's first talk about the function of microRNA. Okay, okay? let's go for it. Yeah. And circular RNAs are one way of how microRNAs are controlled. Mm -hmm. Circular RNAs are single-stranded of RNA and they also exist in each cell of your body. Okay, And circular RNAs are sometimes much bigger than microRNAs. MicroRNAs are really small nucleotide-wise. They are like 20 nucleotides. Right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And circular RNAs can be a thousand. Ooh. Sometimes this circular RNA has 
20 binding sites for this microRNA, okay? So this microRNA can bind to the bases because it's complement, like here, can complement and bind several microRNAs. So let's put it all together, Julia. You've learned that microRNAs inhibit protein synthesis. Exactly. And circular RNAs can sponge. We call that sponging because they can bind and they can release microRNAs. So what do you think circular RNAs are ultimately doing? Well, they're controlling the whole protein synthesis in a way. Mm, not entirely. Yeah, not entirely. But are they controlling or, let's say, giving commands of some certain protein synthesis within the body? So because it looks like that. They have a pocket here here of some special things and then at some point they were like this microRNA should get out but how would you say at which point should they get out maybe there is some yeah this cancer thingy that you don't want to the circular RNA inhibit the inhibitor of protein synthesis okay <laughs> but the most important thing for us is microRNAs okay that is what we are interested in because that is predicting of what proteins will come in the near future from DNA, you cannot say this because every cell has all your DNA, mm -hmm. but the mRNA is cell type specific. Okay. So from the DNA, you cannot say whether you have a skin cell or a um, lung cell of your body. Well, we, we will talk about methylation at some point, but uh, we will ignore this for now. But the mRNA in the cells is much more cell type specific. That's wonderful. Okay. So from the mRNA of your lung cell, we would be able to say, yeah, that's that's Julia's lung. That's not her muscle. But can you say that it's Julia's cell and not Daniel's cell? Yeah, because <laughs> <laughs> we can also talk about this. That is also one option. You can yes, you can, can call SNPs from, from mRNA. So it's not only cell type specified, that is also individual yes. specified. Do you know anything about wobble, Julia? Wobble. Wobble. What? Not at all. Okay. I just know how to wobble, but that's not the thing that you want to hear. <laughs> no, that's exactly the thing that is happening here. So the first two bases are really stiff and safe, but the third base can sometimes be exchanged and still result in the same amino acid. What a beautiful life we have. <laughs> this this is good because you are then resilient to mutations on that third base here. Yeah, If that mutates, it's not that bad as if one of the other two bases would mutate. Of course, your body doesn't choose which bases will mutate, but um, this makes a lot of mutations in your genome not harmful to your body. Okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, Interesting. Also, cool. we need three letters here because we have only four bases at the mRNA, but yeah. we have, I think, 20, 21, over 20 different amino Amino acids. So there needs to be a translation table. Which three bases to which amino acids? And those are the tRNAs. Aha, uh -huh. okay. Uh, and this wobble pocket? Yeah, this, this wobble is basically that the third basis sometimes does not matter. For some, if it's here an A or a G, both will end up in the same amino acid that will end up in the same enzyme that will work the same way. It's something it's, like a sticky pocket that will stick to whatever base that is near another two. It's some flexibility on the tRNA layer. Mm -hmm. Which is good because, again, even if they differ, sometimes you end up with the same well-functioning protein in the end. It doesn't harm you. But those DNA differences between both of us, the A and the T here, even mm -hmm. though we end up with the same protein, we can sequence the mRNA and see still the difference in the letters. And we can sequence the RNA and see, oh, that's an A, that must be Daniel. That's a T, that must be Julia. Oh, this is amazing for me. <laughs> yeah, but now it becomes clearer. Very nice.
<laughs> we talked about the DNA at some point having a start and the end. Okay. Each chromosome has a start and an end, and that is where en some enzymes start. For sequencing, we have one problem: is that we don't need one piece of DNA that we can sequence, but we need multiple. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We need in the amount of millions. So how do we come from, in the worst case, from one DNA strand to millions? What do you think? Yeah, that's exactly this polymerase chain reaction. Just because <laughs> I have heard about it. Yeah. First of all, it's made in laboratory, so it's mm -hmm. well-established technique mm -hmm. right now. Yep. And it allows you, or maybe not you, you're a bioinformatician, right? You're not really in the wet lab. Mm -hmm. uh, but <laughs> the one scientist that are in the lab um, to make copies of this specific piece of DNA. What I also know that there is some heating process mm -hmm. involved mm -hmm. in order to separate the strands, like to make them... Denature. Well, yeah. Denaturation, no? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So then DNA should go through this heating process, denaturation, mm -hmm. um, and then... Polymerase, isn't it also enzyme just because it sounds this way? Yeah. That is the key that helps you to do that, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. We will start with an easy overview of PCR. So we have several steps that we do roughly 30, 34 cycles. We want to have exponential growth in the amount of DNA. And we start with, in the worst case, again, one strand of DNA. We heat it up. So there's water, there's DNA that we put into the water. Yeah. And that sample we heat up to 95 degrees Celsius. Yeah. But this does is it pulls those two strands of DNA apart. Mm -hmm. So you have you have the same information. The bases weren't affected. The sequence is not affected by this. But you have somehow now instead of one closed DNA, mm -hmm. two open ones. Okay. What we also need is a for an enzyme a starting point. And for this enzyme that we are working with, the open ends of the DNA that we talked about here are not enough. We need primers. Primers are small parts of DNA that we randomly make in the lab. So those are really small small pieces of DNA with random nucleotide that just by chance at some point are compatible with the beginning mm -hmm. of the single-strand DNA. So you have single-stranded DNA where a part of it is double-stranded because a primer was fitting here. Wait, how do you know that this random very short piece, mm -hmm. a primer, will end up exactly in the beginning? It could also end up being in the middle, isn't it? Or it doesn't matter? Or did I misunderstand? No, no, it's that is a really good question. Um, sometimes you know the beginning. For example, if we sequence mRNA, we have a poly A tail. Ah, that's the thing. So that's something like a label for you to recognize that that's exactly the beginning. And if we do T, poly T primers, what happens is mm -hmm. that it always starts at one end. That's perfect. That's Smart. easy, right? Yeah. With DNA, we can't do that. We need random primers. And for DNA, it sometimes will also bind in the middle. Yes. And sometimes thus we will have shorter fragments. But it can also happen that one binds in the middle and another one binds on the end. Okay. Isn't it a disaster for you then to recognize what's going on? No, that's easy because we can easily sort out the smaller fragments later. Ah, okay. Mm. We have double-stranded DNA that we split into two single-stranded. I will just continue with one for now because it makes it easier. And let's say that in this perfect case, we have a DNA primer that just by chance is compatible here and binds to the beginning. And now that is a starting point. Yeah? So here we start denaturing at 95 degrees, but this primer annealing happens at 45 degrees. Mm -hmm. So the DNA is cooled down. When 
you cool down the water, the DNA wants to bind again. Is that strange to explain it like this? But um, the primer then is bound because temperature sinks and the DNA is okay. So it wants mm -hmm. to close again and we But have those hydrogen bonds that will form again. And then they cannot bind together because you already have some primers binded yeah. there. Yeah, mm -hmm. and that is why the other strand will not easily come here again because there are already primers that are bound. Those primers, those small fragments of DNA, after the annealing comes the extension where now enzymes come in. Oh, hello. Hello, enzymes. Uh, we call this one tech polymerase. Mm -hmm. It is a DNA-dependent DNA polymerase. Nice. Sounds <laughs> like a riddle. Let's see what Daniel will make out of it. The DNA-dependent DNA polymerase can only bind to DNA and can only synthesize DNA. You started with RNA, how it is now DNA. I mean, after we decrease the temperature and... No, no, here, here, we, here we started with DNA, let's say. We can also later do it in RNA, but this all here is DNA for now. So at 95 degrees, we denaturated the DNA. DNA. We pulled the strings apart. We pulled the strings, then uh, we, we... let it cool down. Uh-huh. And they bound it again. And now we are talking about... No, no, they are not bounded again. They are... The single-stranded DNA that were that are floating around now in the hot water. Ah, okay, okay. Now you're talking about single-stranded DNA. Mm -hmm. The primers were bound. Yeah? We cool the water down slowly and the primers bind first. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And the primers bind first to the single-stranded DNA. Yeah. And thus the single-stranded DNA doesn't go to double-stranded DNA again because the primers are on the way. Yeah. They block this. And this TAC DNA dependent is related to the single-stranded DNA pieces. Where a primer is already bound and we have a starting okay. point. Okay. Mm -hmm. okay. This is a starting point for the DNA dependent DNA polymerase, where now the DNA starts to go over the single-stranded DNA and puts in other DNA bases. So it, it's called extension because we extend the primer, basically. Yeah, we put other nucleotides on top and the tech polymerase also needs nucleotides, of course. Yeah? So in this case, we have T, C, A and G. Yeah? And these are in the millions floating around in that solution already from the beginning. Like a free nucleotides in the solution. Yeah. Exactly. And we have the enzyme, the tech polymerase, also in that solution. We have the primers and we put it somewhere where we can control the temperature. What do you mean by somewhere? Thermostat? No, it's called a thermocycler. Anyway, we have this polymerase now. Yeah? Yeah. It docks on, on this primer site, takes those T, C, A's and G's out of the solution and puts them on the single-stranded DNA and, and thus synthesizes the other strand of the DNA, which of course is OH at the one end, yeah, and then comes a phosphorus. Is it in a way a self-assembly then, after you help uh, with the temperature and with introducing the TAC polymerase? I think the TAC polymerase does need energy. It needs ATP, but I'm not sure. That catalyzes the reaction of DNA elongation after primer annealing, after DNA denaturation, okay? So then these free nucleotides are flowing into uh, the single-stranded DNA and thus making it longer. They are compatible with the base on the other end. Yeah. So when the enzyme is done, we have then again double-stranded DNA. That is when the tech polymerase leaves this. Then it's done. Yeah. Okay. We had, we had the primer at the beginning, and then the enzyme went through and added one nucleotide after the other, made the phosphorus OH bound. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
and made it into one coherent strand again. So now we have double-stranded DNA. By this protocol, we doubled the amount of DNA that was in before, right? Exactly, yes. And now comes the nice part. Before we come to the nice part, one thing is missing for me, all these free nucleotides mm -hmm. swimming in the solution. Mm -hmm. Can you just buy them like a powder? Yep. Ah, okay. Then it's clear. You have this solution and then you introduce the DNA. And then once you have a single-stranded DNA, these free nucleotides... I still would like to use the word self-assembly. Not self-assembled. That is why the enzyme here is needed. Self-assembly would be if the nucleotides just swim here, dock on and make this reaction here. But they are not. Yeah, This tech polymerase enzyme is absolutely needed. If you don't add this polymerase then nothing happens here, except that you pull it apart, primer stock, and then no more DNA gets synthesized. Because those those bases here, they would dock on the single-stranded DNA, but they would, would not connect to each other and thus not form a coherent strand of DNA, okay? I take my words back. Yeah, that's not a self-assembly. <laughs> This is a polymerase-forced assembly yeah. and doubling of the amount of a DNA and somehow transformation from a single-stranded to a double-stranded again, mm -hmm. which is complementary. Then. Exactly. It is complementary. And this happens, of course, to the other strand from the beginning, which was complementary in the beginning. Yeah? So you have the complementary of the complementary and the complementary. And then using this thermocycle thingy, you could multiply it by whatever. So here we go in with two strands of DNA. Yeah. And this happens to two strands of DNA. So we end up with four strands of DNA. Exactly. Roughly. Okay. Yeah. So from one molecule, we go to two. Yeah. And then the cool part is that this tech polymerase survives 95 degrees. Yeah? This enzyme is stable still at 95 degrees Celsius, which means that we could just add nothing and start all over with the same sample. And that's why the cycling. And that's the same cycler. Yeah? We do this roughly 30 times and because we double each cycle and at some point we have enough DNA for sequencing. So it's like an exponential growth. Exactly. That's why it calls this chain reaction. The chain corresponds to a cycle or is it polymerase chain? Does the chain in this PCR refers to a single-stranded DNA or to the cycle? That's what I'm asking myself. <laughs> <laughs> This is a double-sided, right? No, I, I think the chain is here that you chain the sample several times to the Yeah, to the, the then it's kind of cycle, <laughs> yeah. cycle chain. Sounds wonderful. Yeah, you have like millions, billions of copies of mm -hmm. the original piece that you once pulled inside of your reaction flask. Yeah, now comes the even more interesting part. Julia, what happens if you design nucleotides that are not just like those simple nucleotides that we added here? Yeah? But you design chemically nucleotides that don't have the OH group here. They don't. What happens? What do you think? Without OH group, mm -hmm. can they have a free ending? Will they have a free ending? <laughs> the solution is... I, I, I would not believe that they, they would have a free ending. Then something else will connect there. No, it just stops. It abruptly stops? and absolutely stops. The polymerase, it can't synthesize anymore. It needs the OH group for connecting the phosphorus, for connecting the next base to the other. Can we even have the strands without like a logical ending OH in it? Is it possible that, uh, that you have yes. such a broken pieces? Are Wait. they broken? Are they mutated? Like what, what are what, these what, Once you have a base with a missing OH group yeah, and the tech polymerase still can attach this one, but it will not be able to attach the next one yeah, because the next one needs this OH group and the phosphorus from the next base to be attached to each other. So mm -hmm. the DNA strand synthesis just stops abruptly. 
mm-hmm. with a base that has not the OH group on it. And how can it happen that it doesn't have OH group? Or is it a theory now from a bioinformatician? It's not a theory, it's how we sequence. So you break it by yourself? We make it stop abruptly at some point, yes. Is that a correct assumption to say that in the nature, in living organisms, when we have DNAs and RNAs, they all by default have this OH? And if you want to sequence, then you force this OH somehow to go away? Yeah, we chemically need to engineer that. That's actually quite expensive to buy those nucleotides without the OH. In nature, you don't find those nucleotides with a, without the OH. Okay, good. So mm. this is forced by you experts so that you could sequence Yeah. Okay, that's a bit a calming story for me because <laughs> if we would have a DNAs within us that could abruptly just stop, I mean... Then the mRNA yeah. would be broken, then the yeah. protein resulting in that would be broken, then the protein function would be broken and thus you would be sick or dead. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. What about some cancerous or some damaging DNA structures that are appearing in the body? Might it be that they don't have this OH? Uh, to be honest, I don't know of any particular sickness or disease that comes from DNA's DNA bases suddenly lacking mm-hmm. the OH group. Mm-hmm. It's something definitely lab-grown, lab-made. All right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's start. We are still on DNA, yeah? and we we start with a, with a sample that we did the PCR with. Yeah? We have this DNA strand here. With what bases are there, Julia? Yeah, there is... G, A, C, and T. Mm-hmm. Good. Okay. And now, with the knowledge that we can chemically engineer nucleotides that lack the OH group, mm-hmm. and then suddenly the DNA synthesis stops, we need another piece of knowledge. Let's say you have a gel. Is the most solid gel that you eat? I would say it's... Götterspeise, for example. There's a lot of agar in it. It looks really wobbly on the table. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. And? Do you do you know something like this? Yeah, you, you ate it before. Gelatine. Gelatine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Good. Okay. Did you play a word game with me right now? <laughs> no, 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 no. We are we are doing science here. Let's assume that we have a um, small piece of gelatin or something very similar. It's a matrix, okay? It's a wobbly matrix of something. There are holes between the molecules, mm-hmm. but they are a defined size, those holes. Like a membrane filter. Something like this, like a filter, yes. Mm-hmm. But it's more like a gel. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Imagine it being solid piece of like a cigarette filter, maybe, but in watery solution. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and we also need one more piece of knowledge that DNA generally is negatively charged. Okay. So in solution... If you have a plus positively charged piece, DNA will swim towards it. Mm-hmm. So just you, if, you, if you induce potential uh, within your solution. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's say we have a pocket, yeah, two different pockets. And one pocket, we put in long pieces of double-stranded DNA, yeah, really mm-hmm. long, thousands of base. Okay. And in the other pocket, we do very small pieces of DNA, very tiny, okay? We put them in, in, in those pockets that are inside that gel, which has a matrix with holes in it, like mm-hmm. a cigarette filter, for example. Okay, And then we put a charge at the other hand. What do you think will happen? Yeah, then they will start to get attracted there and, and pull through the body of the gel to, mm-hmm. towards the positive charge. Perfect. And which one will be faster? The, the short one. 
Exactly. And why? Something with friction, maybe something with the size, with the bulkiness of the molecule. Yeah, the resistant, resistance is smaller in a way, right? How, uh, how they're going through the gel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Is there something else? Maybe not only resistance, no? That's, that's completely fine by me, okay? This is the only, <laughs> this is the only thing that we needed. The, the one thing we needed is that we can have nucleotides with a missing OH. We can make them in the lab. Yeah. And if we introduce them into PCR, mm-hmm. then suddenly at that point where the base is incorporated, after this base, the synthesis stops. Yeah. The piece of DNA is just stopping there. The synthesis ends and it stays like this. Yeah, because this DNA base is still built in properly. It's stable there, but the next one will never be attached. Okay. Mm-hmm. Next piece of knowledge is that if we have two different lengths of DNA, mm-hmm. And we put them into this matrix gel, put a charge on it and let it run towards the positive charge. Then the smaller will be faster, yeah, will be further here after, after a certain time than the longer piece of DNA. Mm-hmm. Okay, what do you think? If we combine those two things, how do we sequence? If we combine these uh, broken pieces mm-hmm. of DNA with these ones? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, how do you sequence? <laughs> I, we will build up slowly. because this this piece of information that uh, that you gave now with the gel that just tells me uh, that we could define the length of our DNA's uh, p- DNA pieces that we have in our solution. Yeah, but that is still not the key to start sequencing out of nothing. It is. It is because we can define the length of the DNA piece based on the base. Correct. If we have a nucleotide, a G that doesn't have an OH end, then this piece of DNA will end at a G, okay? And this end with a G will be shorter than the full sequence. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's start slowly. Yeah, that's a bit complicated to grasp. Yeah, yeah, I see. I think I'm getting there. So I hope the, you too, guys. <laughs> from the PCR, we have a lot of DNA. We have now a million pieces of DNA, okay? Yeah. And we now do a very similar thing as before, but we do it in four buckets. One we call the T bucket, one we call the C bucket, one we call the A bucket, and the other one we call the G bucket. In all of those buckets comes the sample, a piece of it, a part of it, Mm -hmm. a little bit, okay? So boop, 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 and boop. And in all of those buckets comes the tag polymerase, the enzyme that we talked about, the, Mm -hmm. the elongation of the chain. And in all of those four buckets, T, C, A, and G, comes the nucleotides. Mm -hmm. But also, and here's the trick, in each of those buckets comes 1% of not only the typical T, C, A, G nucleotides, but in the T bucket, we put roughly 1% of T nucleotides that doesn't have the OH group. Uh Aha, okay. Okay? Mm -hmm. So roughly 1% of the nucleotides in the T make it suddenly stop at that point. Mm -hmm. Okay? We do the same with the C, where roughly 1% of the C nucleotides make Mm -hmm. the polymerase chain reaction to stop. Mm -hmm. We do the same with the A. Roughly 1% of A's in that solution will make the DNA elongation stop at a A nucleotide. And roughly 1% of Gs will also stop the PCR. Mm-hmm, okay. You keep track of those, which one is what letter, mm-hmm. and you do a typical PCR like we did before, yeah, with the denaturing of the DNA, with the primers, with the annealing then of the primers, and then you have the tag polymerase that starts to synthesize the DNA. But at some point in the T, we have a T built in just by chance because it's 1%, which stops it, which stops the elongation of the DNA, okay? This DNA piece here, let's say it is a thousand nucleotides long, okay? Yeah. And a time point 
so where in the sequence the T is that stops the synthesis mm -hmm. is completely random. We cannot control it. Yeah? Mm -hmm. We edit this at the beginning. So at some point it will stop here. At some point it will stop at the very end, maybe because it's a T. At some point it will stay here, blah, 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 blah. And we have, after a PCR, we typically have millions of DNA pieces. Yeah, because we made it several cycles. So yeah. it was exponentially growing. But we, in the end, we have a random distribution of length of these. At some point stopped by a T. It always stopped at a T. The original sample yeah, that has the full length mm -hmm. at some at this point is of course only a small fraction of the total DNA in that bucket. Yeah? Because we once we did the PCR, most of the DNA in this bucket is the newly synthesized with at some point being stopped by a T. It is only a small, small fraction of the original DNA that is still in the bucket afterwards. Okay. And now we still keep track of the T, C, A and G bucket, but we do the same with it. Yeah? We all do a PCR where at some point randomly it stops. And now we go again into this matrix jar. Okay. We put this T in a pocket. We do the same with the C, with the A, and with the G. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We again put a charge on it. So what do you think will happen? Yeah, depending on the length, uh, you will get different speed of... It's not really the pockets, it's like nu nucleotide chains. Yeah, length of chain. That's that's the case. Yeah. Anyhow, you will have a random distribution in in each of them be because if we are talking about the pocket T in every strand, the T will happen randomly somewhere in the beginning, at the end, and so on. Mm -hmm. And then in this pocket, you will have a number of different lengths, right? Like like many of them. Some yeah. of them shorter, yeah. some of them longer. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah then uh, I'm still having complications. What is the sequencing and <laughs> how does it go? Because <laughs> now now you basically multiply it and then you have a combination of whatever, like a huge randomness uh, within your pockets. Exactly. And I mean, no clarity so far. Okay, so we said that in this pocket, there are molecules which have different sizes. And the sizes define how fast you are in the gel. Yeah? We stop when the first DNA piece here gets through the gel. At that point, we stop. We have the maximum resolution. And we still keep track of which one is what base. Mm -hmm. And as I imaged here now, we have, again, several speeds for each bucket we, because we have several length of DNA parts, yes. DNA pieces that, st that stopped at different parts of, of the PCR. And if you now do a result of this, yeah, at this position here, at the first, the slowest was this G. So we have here a G. The second slowest fragment was somehow part of the C. So we have a C. Yeah? Right after this comes here a T mm -hmm. and then exactly. Yeah? That is how we see. So it's just based on the different speeds of oh the DNA fragments uh -huh. resulting from the PCR that at some point with a specific base stops and thus dictating the length of the DNA and thus dictating the speed in the gel. You could fish out the exact position of nucleotides within within the whole sequence. Mm -hmm. I didn't see it coming. <laughs> the best thing about it is that this, how we explained it now with the four different buckets for TCA and G and the 1% of the without the OH nucleotides, that is the most used sequencing technique worldwide. But is that the Sanger technique that, that, that is you the want Sanger to say? Technique. One, one thing that I need to mention also is that we don't just add the nucleotides with the 
OH group missing, mm -hmm. but those nucleotides also have attached to it on the side, so it doesn't affect the reaction. But on the side, they have something like a, a glowing thing, just a marker that when you shine light on it, you see it more clearly. So Is it GFP? No, it's not a whole protein Aww. that we attach to bases that would make <laughs> it too clunky. But but it's something similar to this, where where we attach just a defined signal onto that base that doesn't affect the reaction, just makes it more easier on the gel than to separate them. Ah, then you're using something like fluorescent lamp to yep. to check out. Exactly. In the beginning, it was made with a radioactive bases, and then you would check with a with a radio not with the radio from the car radio, but the radioactive signal from the gel where mm -hmm. it is the most intense. And is that one of the first sequencing techniques that were that, discovered? That is Zanger. Frederick Zanger invented it. Mm -hmm. um, again, it is the most used sequencing technique today. Still, so yeah. so it's one of the first, and yeah. it's still on the market. Yes. Are there some other sequencing techniques? Yes. Okay. There are multiple ones which are cheaper per gigabase, but the interesting thing is if you give me one sample yeah, with a thousand DNA bases, mm -hmm. and you give me 10 bucks, then I will sequence it for you. Mm -hmm. 10 euros. How um, how well is the result at the end? So is it kind of guaranteed? Are there some big errors? Because it sounds like super cheap. And from this perspective, why would I go to any other sequencing techniques? I mean, I can yeah. just pay so, and go. So with Zanger, you have... Um, maximum resolution in length here. Yeah? This gel cannot be three meters. Mm -hmm. You have a specific resolution that you can achieve. And uh, at our laboratories here, you can roughly sequence unto one, up to 1 kb, so 1,000 bases mm -hmm. in sequence. But you can only sequence one fragment, one PCR result here. Yeah? One thing, one read comes out of it. That is not a high-throughput sequencing technique, but it is important, for example, when you want to diagnose specific cancers, and those specific cancers are dependent on certain sequences in your DNA, and you know the sequences. Then you can, with a primer, with a very specific primer in the PCR of the whole genome, you can uh -huh. pick those out, and then you can just sequence this short fragment and okay. see uh, from those thousand bases which two or three are different, and thus are you sick with a more aggressive cancer or less aggressive cancer. And this is exactly how this COVID tests worked for us, right? COVID With the PCR, isn't it? The PCR tests. So the the COVID tests used real-time PCR, where you have those nucleotides with a shiny thing on them, mm -hmm. and very specific primers, COVID primers. Okay. And if those primers attach to your sample, which is your DNA in the mucus or blood or wherever, then the DNA gets made. There is more DNA, there's more shiny, shiny, and the brighter the signal, the higher is your signal. That also explains uh, you sometimes get a value out of those PCR tests. Mm -hmm. And the low value is a high amount of virus, mm -hmm. and a high value is a low amount of virus. That comes from how many cycles you needed until you could detect the signal that, yes, there is more DNA coming, so there must be a COVID sequence somewhere in your sample. And the least cycles you need the more DNA was in there from the beginning. Okay. Yeah, amazing. I think that for fundamentals now, we really came to a good point. Uh, we named the technique that there is a Sanger sequencing, which was uh, discovered, do you have a year? The Sanger sequencing technique was developed by Frederick Sanger and colleagues in 1977. 1977, okay. Yes. Yeah. The, how safe it is, you ask? It's around 99.99% safe. How it is for bioinformaticians? Is it safe enough or you would like to have something <laughs> even so, safer? Because <laughs> for me, I would say, well enough. But what about you? 99.99% is is good. Let's say it's it's more for the clinic where you have something where you 
know exactly which gene could or could not be modified to make it more interesting or to change the treatment. Yeah. There you have, let's say, gene B on nucleotide 13. If that is a T and not an A, then you would need more aggressive therapy. Okay. That is where sequencing comes in, for, uh, mm -hmm. Sanger sequencing comes in, for example. Deoxynucleotide concentration is roughly 100-fold higher than that of the corresponding D-deoxynucleotide. D-deoxynucleotide is without the OH group. Um, you lost me with this sentence. <laughs> so the, the T is also in there, but also the T with a missing OH group. And that concentration is roughly 100. So the T is 100 times there, 99 times, and the T with the missing OH is one time there. Yeah, yeah actually, that's still the point. Why 1%? Because you need some amount of DNA to make it through the PCR to almost the end. Because otherwise you wouldn't be able to detect the two or three DNA pieces here. You need hundreds of each in each point to detect them, to have a strong enough signal at that point. So you need it to be only 1% stopping so that most of the DNA gets through later points. If you make it 3 or 5%, mm -hmm. then you would only be able to detect half the length yeah? because it would break up more early because the chances are higher that it will build in a T with a break signal rather than a continuous signal, basically. I think this is a very important point because my first impression would be, come on, 1%, like add half of it yeah, and then be done faster, but not at all. Yeah. Then you're really losing in length and then you cannot sequence half of it maybe. So the PCR cycles are not that long. If you make 30, 32 PCR cycles, that's half a day, not more, because on most of the denaturing takes only a couple of seconds. Yeah. You don't have to cook a liter. It's only like a microliter. Yeah, but this half a day also wet lab scientists should be there and uh, take care of it. So you pre-program the PCR cycles, temperature, time, next temperature, next time, how many times you repeat what. You put all things, including the protein, the tech polymerase, you put it in at the beginning before it starts. And at the end, the thermocycler can also cool it to six degrees. So store it safely until the next morning. Okay. So it's kind of an automatized procedure already. Thermocyclers are widely used in laboratories, mm -hmm. yeah, because a lot of reactions or enzymes you can control with temperature and that makes it really handy. Yeah, and when you have these pre-programmed uh, protocols that you could put inside, yeah. then it's just golden. Yeah, um, yeah, Sanger sequencing. It's not the most used sequencing technique in our lab. We do offer Sanger sequencing still for this very specific questions. But um, the, the problem in that case is that Sanger sequencing, we are only able to sequence one piece of DNA at a time. Uh, for the next piece of DNA, you would need to repeat that procedure all over. And um, now we are at sequencing techniques where we can sequence millions or even billions of DNA pieces at once. Yeah, highly parallel. But that is just a spoiler for the next time. I'm curious about new sequencing techniques that we are going to discuss. And I promise not to Google so that <laughs> you are getting <laughs> the first-hand experience and also sincere questions of mine. Yeah. Next time we will arrive in the year 2000. All right. Yeah, we will make a time switch forward. And uh, we are looking forward to your feedback. Yeah, thank you very much for listening in and see you next time. Bye-bye. Turn into Explain today and discover the potential of the next generation sequencing. Shall we eat? Is someone hungry on the other side here?